Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. It says, when he came down, this is Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he, had healed, sorry, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now as we move on from the Sermon on the Mount, we now see Jesus heal many people. There's value in studying each instance, though, which we're going to be doing, because when Jesus does heal, he has a purpose and he uses each instance for a teaching opportunity. I'm going to make a little commercial here and help you out in our study. Don't try to find the secret formula for healing. All right. I'm going to we're going to deal with that in great detail tonight, because when you come to the topic of healing, People think that there's a secret formula, and if you can find the secret formula, and they try to study all these passages to find the secret formula for healing, and as we're going to deal with tonight, there is none. God still heals, and God chooses to heal, and he's very powerful and able to heal, but if you're here tonight looking for the secret formula, you're going to be very disappointed from the scriptures, because I'm going to show you a lot of scriptures that deal with this topic, and we're not going to be able to even get through all of these verses tonight. We're going to deal with just two instances here, but I want you to start to begin to understand that in each instance, when Jesus does heal, he's using the opportunity to teach. He has a purpose in, in his healing. So let's take some time to look at the first account here in Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse, again at verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. In this account of Jesus' healing, this man had what disease? Leprosy. Um, we see a couple of things in this passage. The first one I want you to see is this. The man said, Jesus, if you're willing. And what is Jesus' response? I am willing. 
Now, as a quick reminder, remember when we were doing our study on prayer back in Matthew chapter 6, and I took you over to Luke chapter 11, where Jesus was teaching when he had been praying, and his disciples came and said, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. And then we looked at how Jesus taught in that instance in Luke chapter 11 about how we're to go to God with impudence and shamelessness. Remember how he told the parable about the friend who came at midnight and how he didn't help him because he's his friend, but because of his boldness or his impudence. And we looked at the fact that we need to go to God in prayer with, a, with, with an understanding that he's not only able, he's willing. His heart is to do. And, and in this passage, we see that as well. But I don't want you to miss something else. Again, what kind of disease did this guy have? What did Jesus do besides just say, I'm willing? He touched him. That was something you didn't do to someone that had leprosy. Actually, years ago, when I was a pastor in Chicago, I was at Moody Bible College for a pastor's conference, and there were about a 1,000 pastors all there, and Max Lucado was one of the speakers. And Max Lucado came out onto the stage at that auditorium that night, and he, he, he just sat down on a stool, and all he had with him was pieces of paper that he had just been writing on. He said, I'm going to do something different tonight. I'm just going to read to you something that I've just written. He goes, it hasn't been published. It's still in my note phase if you don't know who Max Lucado is, he's written a lot of books. He's very gifted in communicating and bowling, pulling some deep truths out of the word. But folks, this was over 20 years ago, and it is still embedded in my brain. And he sat there, and he began to read in his notes. And he wrote as if he were the man in this story. And he said, I didn't even realize something was wrong with me until I spilled boiling water on my foot, and I didn't feel it. And then I noticed that my skin began to bubble and I had burnt myself badly, but I had no feeling. Then later on, I started to realize that there, I was losing feeling in my fingers. And in time, it became evident that I had this dreaded disease. People stopped having any contact with me. And worst of all, my wife no longer touches me. In fact, I had to move out of my house I had to go live in a colony with others who have leprosy. And I haven't had physical contact in 15 years until today. There was this man, and he touched me. It was powerful. We were just sitting there just enraptured with the ability of him to take this truth of the scriptures, pull it out from a side that you might not have never looked at, Jesus didn't just say, I'm willing, touches him, touches him. But also Jesus said not to say anything to anyone. Look closely. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. He said to him, don't tell anybody about what has just happened, except go right now to the priest, offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded. By the way, if you go back and look, I think it's Leviticus chapter 14, you'll see there's very specific things that they're to do after they had leprosy and they've been cleansed. They were to go and offer these things. But look, who was God wanting to prove himself to through this man? The priests. Go show yourself to them as a proof to them 
He definitely is teaching us that God is willing and, and not only able, but willing to bring healing. And that he has compassion and he touches this man who hadn't been touched. But at the same time, this healing was for the priests. You go show yourself as a proof to them. By the way, does anybody know how he did? Do we know whether or not he did what he was supposed to do here? Does anybody know? If you don't, that's okay. That's why I'm here. Go to Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter 1. Go to Mark chapter 1. And look at verses 40 through 45. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. Look at Mark's account. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. We're going to chase something for a second. I'm going to chase a rabbit. As I've taught you in the past, it's okay to chase a rabbit as long as you can catch it. This is one we can catch. Jesus sternly warned him not to tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest because I'm doing something and I want the priests to know. But the man didn't do what Jesus said. And he went and told everybody, and he actually hindered the work of God. Do you see it? He hindered the work of God by telling people. I've run into a lot of Christians over the years who love to tell the story of salvation, and they call themselves evangelists, and they have a heart to share the gospel and tell people about Jesus. But do you know that if your attitude is, I'm just going to tell it wherever and whenever... As good as that sounds, you actually may be working against the plan of God. You remember back, I've taught you in the past, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, when Jesus said, the fields are wide unto harvest, but the laborers are few. What does he say next? We need more workers? What does he say? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his fields. It's God who is doing this work of calling people to himself. It's God who has made the world, and he's got a purpose and a plan. As you're going to see in our study tonight, it's to the Jew first and to the Gentile. It's always been to the Gentiles as well, but he's got a purpose and a plan and a timing. But we have a tendency to think God needs our help. And I know people say, well, I just share it everywhere I go. Well, actually, the Bible says that that's not always good. Didn't we see earlier in our study of Matthew that we're to be Wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and we're not to cast our pearls before swine. I want you to see, and I'm going to chase this rabbit real quick, that there are times that God says, I don't want you to tell them, not yet. There's times I want you to tell, but you go when I tell you and how I tell you. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Galatians chapter 2 and look at verses 7 through 9. In Galatians chapter 2, in verses 7 and following, uh, Paul says, On the contrary, this is verse 7, Galatians 2, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars there in the Jerusalem church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Did you catch that? By the way, does anybody know from the scriptures, did Paul have a heart for the Jews? You hopefully know in Romans chapter 9, he said, if I could go to hell and that would cause Israel to be saved, I'd do it. He wanted the Jews to be saved. And at the beginning of his ministry, he kept going to the synagogues and synagogues and synagogues to share and reason with them. But God began to show him, look, my plan for you, Paul, is to use you to preach to the Gentiles. I'm going to use Peter to preach to the Jews. Go to Acts chapter 16. Look at verses 6 through 10. This is Paul and Silas and Timothy And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see it? Paul now had come to realize that he had been chosen to go to the Gentiles. So now, as you know from Paul's own writings, he wants to preach the gospel where people haven't already preached it. He wants to preach where people hadn't heard the gospel. And so he was trying to go into Asia, but the Spirit said no. The neat thing about Paul was, even though he was obedient to God's call in his life, he was still listening and being led of the Spirit as he does it. Beware of those who have their policies. They have their formula. They have their way they do things. And folks, if you've been a Christian long enough, isn't it true that a lot of Christians fight with the other Christians over how to share the gospel? This is the only way to do it. Well, this is the way Jesus did it. Well, actually, if I challenge you to show me how Jesus shared the gospel the same way ever. If you look at each of the instances, they're all different. But yeah, people have written books about the only way that Jesus shared the gospel, and this is the only way you're to do it. It's got to be the four spiritual laws. No, it's going to be the Roman road. No, it's got to be this method or that. And we have a tendency to think that we've got God figured out and we go out trying to do the work of God in our own strength. And God says, this is my work. I want you to go where I want you to go, when I want you to go. And the spirit wouldn't let them go into Asia. The neat thing is they don't just go sit home and say, and say, well, we'll just wait. We'll just wait until God tells us. No, he had already, they've been told, go into all the world and make disciples. So they try to go into Mysia. But the spirit again says, no. And they have this vision of a man of Macedonia. Now, by the way, if you've ever done the research, these verses, verses 6 through 10, read real quick, don't they? But if you go look on a map of where they were when they began and how, where they ended up, it's over 400 miles. By the way, how were they traveling back then? It didn't happen quickly, did it? It was over a period of time. And if you read on, by the way, in this awesome story, when they go into Macedonia, they still don't know where they're supposed to share the gospel. So they go looking for where people are being drawn by the Spirit. Remember how when Jesus sent them out two by two? He said, when you go into a house, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. If not, move on. They go looking for a place of prayer. And they go down to this place by the river where these people were gathering to pray. And the first convert 
in Macedonia was a woman named Lydia. And the Bible says she was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple, which meant she was very wealthy. You were able to sell purple, you had money. Purple wasn't something that a lot of people had back then. That, that cost money. Does anybody want to take a wild guess where Thyatira is? It's in Asia. Isn't that awesome? Paul says, I want to go into Asia and preach the gospel. God says, I'll get you into Asia, Paul, but I'm going to do it my way and in my time. I want you to be understanding that we are to be willing to share and wanting to share the gospel, but be listening as we go. Let me give you one more example. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Look at verses 14 through 20. Now, Jesus had just healed this man who had a legion of demons in him. And when he did, the demons left and they went into these pigs and the pigs killed themselves by drowning themselves. The herdsmen, the ones that herded the pigs, verse 14 of Mark 5, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. By the way, if you do a study of this story, you're going to see the demons ask Jesus a question. Don't send us to the abyss before the appointed time. Could you send us into those pigs? And Jesus said, yes. The townspeople came and said, would you please leave? And he said, yes. But the man who had come to faith begged him that he would go with him. And Jesus told him what? Told him no. Why? Because Jesus has a purpose and a plan and he's accomplishing his work in his fields Folks, I'm going to tell you, have a prayerful heart that says, Lord, where would you want to use me? But be listening and go where he says and wait until he does. Don't try to go do for the Lord. I think we've done more damage for the kingdom sometimes by trying to get people saved. By the way, doesn't the Bible say that some seed falls on the rocky soil and springs up? Sure looks like salvation, but not really saved. When trouble comes, it would be evident they're not really saved. Some seed falls on the thorny soil, springs up, sure looks like salvation, but cares of this world and stuff like that, choke it. The Bible's real clear, folks, that this work of salvation is God's work. And so I want to encourage you to not be like the man who was healed of leprosy and just, I'm just going to tell everybody. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But sometimes it actually goes against what God's trying to do. I think the people in the world would be a lot more receptive to the gospel if we weren't trying to get everybody saved all at the same time. I know I'm saying radical stuff, but it lines up with the word. All right, we're done chasing a rabbit. Let me ask you a question, a tough one, and don't try to answer it right now. If Jesus is willing to heal, does that guarantee your healing? If Jesus is willing, and he is willing, does that guarantee your healing? Now, the, I'm going to just give you the short answer. No. Yes, no. You end up healed. Eventually. But again, we're going to deal with the whole healing here 
thing first. It's easy for us to say, yeah, when we get to heaven, we'll all be healed. But there is healing that's still available for us here. But first off, I want you to say is before we start going and answering and show you scripturally why that doesn't guarantee everybody will be healed, although there are those Christians who teach such a thing. We, miss, we do miss out on much God has for us because we don't believe or we don't ask. Go with me to James chapter 4 real quick. James chapter 4, and look at verses 1 and following. We're only going to do a few verses. We're not going to go through the whole chapter. The book of James, right after the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, look at verses 1 and following. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. But then you ask and you don't receive because you're asked wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Look closely at what he says. He goes, let me tell you what's going on in your hearts. He's talking to Christians, by the way. It's obvious he's talking about how the spirit within us yearns jealously. He says, you guys are fighting with each other over stuff, trying to get things. And some of you don't even have stuff that I want for you because you don't ask. But others of you, you ask, but you don't get it because your heart's not in the right place. You might have even asked for something I want for you, but I can't give it to you because you've got the wrong reason to ask, even though it might be something I have for you. I remember years ago, in my own personal experience, when this is, praise God, I've been married to Becky almost 30 years now, I'll be 29 this July, and I just shared that so that you would pray for her, and, uh, but, but before I met Becky, I was one of these young men, I didn't get married until I was 25, I was one of these young men that wanted a girlfriend, I wanted to get married. And even though it was something that God desired for me, and it was his will for me, and as much as I asked, God, please show me and send that woman. The answer was a lot of times no. And here's why. The moment God ever gave me a girlfriend, God took the back seat. She was the focus of my life. Everything was about her. And my walk with the Lord went down the tubes because all of a sudden it was her. And God had to show me that in my heart. Because you're asking for the right thing, but you're asking with the wrong motives. And I finally had to get to a point where I literally, and, and it, it was a journey that God took me through that I don't have time to tell you the whole stories about it, but I literally came to a point as a young man in my 20s that I said, Lord, if I never get married, I'm okay with that. Your plan is for me to be single. My walk with you is more important than anything else. And it wasn't six months later that Becky came into my life. We have to keep in mind in this whole healing thing, there's a lot more going on than just the secret formula. And as you're about to see, God is willing, but that doesn't mean just because he's willing, it's going to happen. We also see Jesus stand over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, where he says to them in verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. We miss out on a lot that God has for us because we don't ask or our hearts aren't in the right place. So as we deal with the fact that just because God's willing doesn't mean you're going to be automatically healed, don't miss the truth 
that there's a lot God has for you that you're missing out on because you don't ask. But at the same time, as you ask, let him show you why you're asking. And you'll probably find yourself seeing a lot more prayers answered. Instead of just saying, just tell me yes or no. He wants to go deeper than yes or no. He wants to go to, why are you asking? Oh, by the way, when he asks us, why are you asking? Does he already know why we're asking? Of course he does. He's using the situations to teach us. And I want you to see this. In the first situation, go back to Matthew chapter 8. In the first situation, he was trying to teach a lot that he was not only willing, but that he had compassion and he touched the man. But also, it was to teach the Jewish priests something. I'm just going to make this statement, and we're going to develop it a little bit later on tonight as well. We must be wary of any teaching on healing that puts more emphasis on man's faith or man's effort than God's sovereignty. I'm going to say that to you again. Be wary of any teaching on healing that puts more emphasis on man's faith or man's effort than on God's sovereignty. Beware of trying to find the perfect formula for healing does anybody want to know why we want to find the formula for healing? So we can be God. If we can find the secret formula, if we can study the passages on healing and, okay, you need faith and you need to believe that he's willing and you got to have your heart in the right place. But we're deep down, the reason we want the formula for healing is we want to be in control. Sometimes faith is necessary for healing. The Bible is very, very clear about that. I, let me show you an example. Go to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, it says Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. This is Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Because of their lack of belief and their lack of faith, he didn't, wasn't able to do a whole lot of stuff. Now, don't think for a second that that means God's impotent. But a lot of times... Faith is tied to God's response. But I also want to show you something that is something you know, but maybe have never looked at this way. Go to Luke 22. Sometimes God heals, and it has nothing to do with whether or not anybody has faith. Go to Luke chapter 22. Look at verses 47 through 51. Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear, and he healed him. This is when the crowd's coming to arrest Jesus. 
They, he said, he came up and he says, who, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And the Bible says that in John chapter 18, they all fell down to the ground. But you know what? They all stood back up and continued with the, the arresting. Peter decides he's going to swing his sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus picks it up and puts it back on and heals him. Is it because Malchus had enough faith? Yeah, it wasn't even tied to Malchus's faith. Be careful of the formulas. Because sometimes God heals and it has nothing to do with faith. But I want you to see as we're going to be dealing with this as we go through the book of Matthew in our study. In each instance, he's teaching something. He's teaching something in each instance. Let's go to the next one. Back in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Matthew chapter 8, look at verses 5 and following. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, he said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In this healing account, Jesus uses it to teach that even the Gentiles will be included in God's kingdom. If you look at this passage, that's what's really going on here. He's there and the centurion comes up. By the way, a centurion was a Roman who worked for Rome. And as you know, the Romans were in charge there in Israel. And he says, I got a servant that's suffering terribly. Would you please heal him? Jesus says, I'll tell you what, let's go. Let's go heal him. I'll come to your house and heal him. And he says, you don't even have to do all that. You got enough power. You just say the word. Now, let me ask you a question. When Jesus showed up in this situation, did he know what the response of the centurion was going to be before he said, let's go? Of course. You're going to see it all through the scriptures. Remember, if, if you've never studied it or taken a look, all through the scriptures, the Bible says Jesus knew what they were thinking. He already knew what they were going to do. Peter says, I'll die for you, and, and, and I'll, I'll go to prison for you. Actually, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you know me three times. There isn't anything I don't know what's already going to happen. The, he told Nathaniel when Philip went to get him, I saw you when you were under the tree before Philip came and got you. Folks, don't think for a second that Jesus is walking through this life going, oh, see what happens today. He already knows. He's been talking with the Father. He's been getting instructions from the Father. He's being led of the Spirit. He knows what's going on next. But he uses this situation to teach the Jews who thought they were the only ones in the kingdom. Remember, the last healing was to show the priests Jesus was sent to who? Does anybody know who Jesus was sent to? To the Jews, to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet at the same time, he uses the Gentiles to show the Jews, you're not the only ones in the kingdom, folks. You're not the only, that's what this whole story is all about. You're not the only ones in the kingdom. And he asked, actually, the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Many are going to be coming from the east and the west, and they're going to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom but many of the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Folks, if you don't know this, let me fill you in. The mindset of the Jews at this time was that they were the chosen people of God. And the only two reasons why the Gentiles were even created 
and this is true, they believe the only two reasons why God even made Gentiles was, one, someone has to go to hell. And two, we need servants. But you want further proof? Do you know that the Samaritans were the people who used to be full-blood Jews, but during the time of the captivity in Babylon, they intermarried with the Babylonians, and they made babies that were part Jewish, part Babylonian, and then they moved back into Israel, but they were half-breeds. They lived in Samaria. And how did the Jews feel toward the Samaritans? They not only hated, they thought they were better than them, and they wouldn't even go through Samaria. They thought that they were God's chosen people. And they thought they were righteous and God loved them. And Jesus is trying to get the Jews to understand, hey, go show yourself to the priest that I've got power. Look at what I've done. Oh, and then he uses the centurion and he says, look, the faith this guy has. And God's going to save a lot of Gentiles. And you guys are going to be left out of the kingdom. Did God care about the centurion's servant? Yes. But he had a purpose, and he's using that situation to teach. All of us go through times where sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't, or sometimes he does over time, or sometimes he does miraculously. But we have to keep in mind, in each instance, God's teaching. Oh, I'm going to say to you again at the end of our study, don't become fatalistic. Where you say, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. No, ask, seek, knock. Understand that he's not only able, he's willing, and go to him and ask him, yet at the same time, have an understanding that he's doing something in that situation that you're wrestling with health-wise. And ask him to show you what he's trying to teach. Let me just show you a couple of things real quick here. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. In Matthew 15, verse 21, it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. By the way, is this Jewish country or Gentile country? A little louder. It's Gentile country. This isn't Jewish territory. Tyre and Sidon is Gentile country. So he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. By the way, before we go any further... This Gentile woman calls him what? If she calls him son of David, what does that tell us? She knew who he was. She also knew the prophecies. She knew the Old Testament scriptures. She knew that the prophecy said that there was going to be a Messiah coming from the lineage of David. And she knew it. And she calls, even though she's a Gentile, Canaanite, living in Tyre and Sidon, she calls him son of David. By the way, this is the thing that the Jews weren't willing to say. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then what are you doing in Tyre and Sidon then, Lord? Stick with me. I got a reason and I got a purpose. Just stick with me. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Lord, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
Folks, don't miss this for a second. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but he also cared about the Gentiles. The Bible all along said that the Gentiles were going to be a part of his plan. But he was using the Gentiles to teach the Jews. You know, in John chapter 4, the Bible said, I love how the King James puts it, that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. That's what it says. He had to go through Samaria. By the way, you know in John chapter 4, who does he run into there in Samaria? The woman at the well. Remember, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. They wouldn't even go through Samaria. But Jesus was going out of his way, and he knew he was going to run into that woman at the well, and she was going to come to faith. Here he goes into Tyre and Sidon. He knows this woman is there, and she's got this situation, and he's going to deal with it, but he acts like he's not going to deal with it at first, doesn't he? She calls out, and he doesn't answer. By the way, have there been times you've prayed and called out, and God didn't answer? Are you going to quit, or are you just going to, going to be like this woman and stick with it? And the disciples say, look, she's driving us nuts. Would you take care? Would you do something? He goes, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And her response is so awesome. She's so humble. She says, then I'll be a dog. Then I'll be a dog. Because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And you're so powerful. And you're the only one that has what I need. And you're the only one that can deal with my situation. I'll be a dog then. And I'll just take crumbs. And Jesus then uses what he knew was going to be her response to teach his disciples, look how great is her faith. Folks, in every situation, stop looking for the secret formula so that you can have it work out the way you want and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? In Acts chapter 10, don't have the time to turn there, but in Acts chapter 10, Peter, as you know, is up on this roof and he's hungry and he has this vision of this sheet that comes down with all these animals that were supposedly unclean. And the voice, God says, rise, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. If you know the story, God says, don't you ever call what I've called clean, unclean. Now, for a lot of preachers over the years have said that's the first time God said that those foods were clean, but that's not true. I don't know if you know this or not. Real quick, go to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, look at verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Acts 10 is not the first time that God declared foods clean. When God said to him, don't you call unclean what I've called clean, he had already called it clean. He's been teaching Peter. Peter preached at Pentecost. You, uh, you'll probably know this, right? P 
Peter was the one that God chose to preach, preach through at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit indwelled them all. And Peter stood up and full, full of the Spirit, he began preaching. And he keeps preaching, men of Israel, men of Israel, men of Israel. You go back and look at Acts chapter 2. That's what Peter keeps saying, men of Israel, men of Israel, men of Israel. But you'll also notice that everybody says, how come we're hearing all these people talking in our languages? And they listed all these Gentile languages. Still, he doesn't get it. So now he says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I, I'm not going to, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't call unclean what I call clean. And then right about that time, he gets a knock on the door from these Gentiles. They're saying an angel told us to come and get you. And if you go back and look at Acts chapter 10, verses 25 through 35, he goes into that house and Cornelius has gathered his family and his friends and he actually is so excited about Peter being there, he starts to bow down to worship him. Peter stands him up and says, no, 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 I'm a man just like you. And then Cornelius tells him about the vision of the angel, and all of a sudden a light comes on in Peter. And he says, now I know. God shows no favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation. He's teaching all the time. In this situation in Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion, he's teaching them that, God doesn't just love the Jews. He loves the Gentiles too. For God so loved the world. So let me ask you a question that I hope you already know the answer to. If God's plan all along was to save both Jew and Gentile, actually, if you look at the scriptures, the Bible actually says that God was going to use the nation of Israel as a light to the Gentiles. When Simeon was in the temple and Jesus was being dedicated as a baby, he comes over and he prophesies over Jesus and he again says the same thing. He will be a light to the Gentiles. It had always been all throughout the Old Testament that God was going to save everyone, well, offer the salvation to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. But the Jews misunderstood it and Jesus is trying to teach them this. But as you know, there's going to come a point where, which we're in now, the church age begins which God actually hardens Israel for a little bit, and now he's saving mostly Gentiles. Very few Jews are coming to faith. Oh, there's a Jew here and a Jew there across the globe, just like there were Gentiles here and there when God was drawing the Jews. But I'm asking you a question, and I hope you know the answer, because there are a lot of Christians that don't. Has the church replaced Israel then? Good. I hope you understand that. The answer is no. You look again at Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with who? And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Go to Romans chapter 11 real quick with me. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read to you just a small portion of it. Look at verses 1 through 16. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, meaning the Jews? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And it, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through the, their trespass, salvation has come to who? To the Gentiles, why? So make Israel jealous. Do you see it? By the way, if you want to go double check me, you can. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. God lays out for the nation of Israel their whole history in chapter 32. He talks about their beginning and how he draws them and he reveals himself. And he goes and gives them their whole history, how they're going to turn from him and all this stuff. And then in verse, chapter 32, verse 21, he says this. He says, you're going to go after other gods that aren't gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people to make you jealous. Now, look at verse 12. If there the Jews trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, God had chosen him to go preach to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Jump down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, obedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, I don't know if you've been able to track with me on this yet, but has anybody caught on that this whole salvation thing is God's work and he's doing it in his way, in his time, and he chose even though he, say, he, he died for the whole world and calls the whole world to respond to his offer of salvation, he also, though at different times in different ways, works in different ways. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past he spoke through the prophets, now he's speaking through his son. He used the nation of Israel, now he's using the church, but he's not done with Israel, he's going to finish with Israel. Has anybody caught on yet that this is God's thing and it's a lot bigger than us? Stop trying to find the secret formula and figure it out and act like you know God better than you do. You don't. And at the end of all this, Paul goes into that wonderful praise in verses 33 and following. He says, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever known the mind of God? Who's ever been his counselor? For from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then it goes right into chapter 12 where it says, because of his mercy, because this is all about him and not about us, I beseech you, I beg you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. but be transformed by the daily renewing of your mind. And then I love this. Then you'll know what his will is. Did you catch that? Paul goes from saying you're never going to figure God out 
But if you humble yourself on a daily basis and let him teach you, he'll show you what he wants you to do. God uses sickness. He uses financial loss. He uses family stresses. He uses all sorts of stuff, but it's to teach us. We keep looking for the secret formula so that we can be God and we can have things go the way we want. There's too much misunderstanding about this healing thing, and it all ties to God's ultimate plan to reveal and to teach, and he's doing it his way at his time and his purpose. Are you willing to just walk with him, or do you have to have it all figured out? You'll find life a whole lot easier if you just say, I don't need to have it all figured out. I just want to know what he's telling me and believe that he will show you, because he will. Chris, I saw you. Go ahead. We're worshiping the process instead of God. As you know, in the book that I wrote, and if you don't have it, grab me and I'll give you, I'll have a couple in my car. Remind me next time, we'll have some with us. First principle of the God-centered churches is the fact that God doesn't duplicate his methods so that we will continue to say, Lord, what do you want to do this time? He never does it the same way twice so that we'll follow him. But we keep looking for the secret formula. Yeah, think about like a recipe, right? I'm mm -hmm. not a cook. My wife is an excellent cook. Mm-hmm. And not in the recipe. I like it. I may have to use that sometime. What's that? <laughs> he wants dessert. Let me ask you a question. In this situation with the centurion, all Jesus had to do was just say the word. And... He was healed, right? Now be careful. Does he even have to speak? Good for you. Go to Luke chapter 8. Again, you're going to find that the more you look at all of this in the scriptures, the more that the formula is absolutely blown up. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 and following. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one an only daughter. And, and uh, she was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. 
And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Kind of blows it all up, doesn't it? This time she touched him and she was healed. She touched his cloth. No. I'm just going to show you more and more here in in the weeks to come as you're going to see as we keep going through. In each instance, Jesus is teaching. Stop looking for the formula. You want to be God. We want to have the power. I'm going to ask you one more question. Are you okay with knowing that God loves us and if he chooses to heal us or doesn't, that he's God and he can do whatever he pleases? Are you okay with that? I'm going to make a statement to you and I want to let it sink in. There's a situation where, as we saw tonight in Matthew chapter 8, where the man says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And there's another one, I think it's in Matthew chapter 9, when we get to chapter 9, uh, he says, if you're able. And Jesus says, if I'm able? All things are possible for him who believes. And you've already heard me talk to you about the fact that Jesus was teaching his disciples that we need to come to him with a belief that he's not only able, but that he's willing. And we need to have that heart and we need to come to him. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. If you ask God for something, whether it's healing or whatever it is, and you believe that he's able and willing, you'll be okay if he says no. You've got to let that one sink in for a minute. If you really believe that he's able and willing... You'll be okay if he says no. Does anybody know the answer why? You got it. Because if he's able and willing and the answer is no, no is better than whatever it is we were asking for. His love is bigger than our want. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll see this response in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has sinned with Bathsheba. Now the prophet Nathan comes and points out his sin. Look at verse 13, verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he wouldn't, wouldn't do it, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. 
He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Here's a wonderful example of what we're talking about. He sought, he prayed, he fasted, he wept. He, he, he believed God was able to do it. But he didn't know what was God was going to do. And when God said no, God's God and I'm not. Don't be, like I said earlier tonight, don't become fatalistic with this knowledge. We're to still seek God's healing because he does still heal, heal today. Actually, and I don't have time to go there because we only got a couple minutes left tonight. But in James chapter 5, if you look at verses 13 through 20, the Bible talks about if you're sick and you're to go to the elders of the church and have them pray for you. But if you look at the full context of that passage, you'll notice that sometimes sickness is tied to sin. Don't hear me say that if you're sick, it's because you have sin. That's not what the Bible, again, that's looking for the formula. There's people that actually teach that if you're sick, it's because you haven't forgiven somebody. That might be the case, but that's not the case with every sickness. Some sickness is tied to sin, and God's trying to teach you something. Oh, but by the way, God would never give you sickness right away. If he lives within you, he's going to be talking to you and talking to you and showing you. If you continue to disobey and to ignore and not walk in obedience to what the Spirit's trying to do, the Father lovingly, even though it's not pleasant at the time, will amp up the discipline. And some sickness is tied to sin. And James talks about that. But don't think, like the Jews did, that if you're sick, it's because you're a sinner. Remember when Jesus said in the John chapter 9 about this man who had been born blind, the disciples say, did he sin in the womb or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it's not tied to either. But that God would get glory at this time. Go ahead. You touched on something really powerful. I have to be honest. I've had to wrestle with the fact that God healed me of my cancer. Not everybody is healed like I was. And I not only had a healing of my cancer, I've also had a miracle healing of those blood clots. By the way, a real quick little thing. Last night, one of the nurses that I met in the ICU showed up at the Bible study last night. And that and God awesome. She actually came up and said, were you in the ICU at Holmes Regional? You gave me one of your cards. She didn't show up because of that. She showed up because a friend invited her. And when she showed up in that room, she goes, I think he looks familiar. And God's doing something awesome, isn't he? You never know what God's doing through everything we go through. But I struggle sometimes because God doesn't heal everybody like he healed Jim Johnson. And I don't want you thinking this because I'm closer to God. There's reasons. He has his purposes. That's why I stand before you tonight. Not healed. And in pain, I have been for three weeks now. But God's got his reasons, and I'm still asking. I'm going to the doctor, and he's teaching me stuff through it. But not all sickness is tied to sin. You all know the story of Job, right? Was Job's sickness because of sin? It had nothing to do with sin. But God had his reasons and his purposes. As we close tonight, I want to make this statement to you. As we follow Jesus' ministry... Let us learn and grow, but let's avoid looking for a formula that gives us the power that makes us God. We're going to be going through the book of Matthew now. We're out of the Sermon on the Mount. 
We're moving now into the episodes of Jesus' life as he goes and he teaches. And we're going to see story after story after story. Unfortunately, a lot of people read these stories to try to find the secret formula. There's no secret formula. He's teaching. Glenn. You got it. You got it. I love y'all. We'll see you in two weeks. Remember, no Bible study next week and the week after in the back corner over there.